You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn, and welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business worlds. Today, our guest is Susan Galeas. Susan has over 30 years of experience in nonprofit management, development, public policy, and marketing experience, working to transform organizations into fiscally healthy, mission-driven, and highly successful entities by integrating vision, creativity, strategy, engagement, and a focus on good. Over the past five years, she is president and CEO of the Family Center in Nashville, Tennessee, where she's worked closely with the board and staff to overcome cycles of challenges, much like the organization works with families to overcome cycles of trauma. Prior to Nashville, Susan was served as president and CEO of Alzheimer's Greater LA for six and a half years. She's a graduate of Loyola University in New Orleans, with a BA in psychology, and she has a master's of social work from Tulane University and a master's in public health from Tulane University's public health school. Susan is a proud mom of a 31-year-old daughter, three fur babies, one canine, two feline. She loves traveling and reading and snow. Hi, Susan. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy. Hey, Gary. It's great to see you. I know. We have been together off and on for a long time, and we'll go into that as we go along. I know you started out your career graduating from Tulane, that great football school. And, yeah, uh, Green Bay. <laughs> at least this year. <laughs> I know you have an MSW and an MPH. And how did you get into nonprofit work after college? Well, it was a, a kind of an interesting story. I was a bit of a latent student, both for my undergraduate and my undergraduate degrees were from Loyola University in New Orleans, right next to Tulane. I had a major in psychology and a minor in sociology. And when I made the decision to go to graduate school, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to do a dual program that allowed me to earn my MPH in conjunction with my MSW with an additional semester. So it was an opportunity to kind of learn more about different fields and allowed me to do some work in the medical world. I was at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and then at a child and adolescent psychiatric hospital in New Orleans. And working in those worlds exposed me to the fact that I really needed to do more to help more people. And the way that managed care was working at that time was driving therapists to serve people who had financial resources. Uh, I was a single mom and I needed to support my child and doing social work with underserved populations was not going to earn me enough to be able to pay my student loans and feed my child and dress her the way she wanted to be dressed. And we <laughs> up, you, you have a daughter, you know what that's like. It's all about the clothes, right? <laughs> In looking at career opportunities that could utilize my degrees and my skill sets, 
And my skill sets also included many years in marketing and sales. So easy transition from marketing and sales into fundraising. My challenge is I'm not very good at sales if it's something that people, that's not helping people. So when I had an opportunity in my career to move to becoming an executive director of a nonprofit organization that really did meld with a passion that I had, mm-hmm. it just seemed like a good fit. I thought I'd try it. And here I am all these years later, still doing it. There you go. You know, well, you know, everybody's journey takes different roads. And where we think we're going to go is always up, always where we end up, you know, from that standpoint. Tell us, you're at the Family Center in, in Nashville now. Tell us a little about the Family Center, what it does and uh, things like that. So the Family Center is a 38-year-old organization. It has a long history in Middle Tennessee, and we are slowly moving into other areas across the state. Our mission is breaking intergenerational cycles of childhood trauma, and our vision is creating resilient communities where all children thrive. Everything that we do recognizes that there is science behind children's brain development. And that science is affected by experiences children have that can create toxic stress that not only changes the brain, it actually affects their epigenetics. So when we think about a lot of the struggles that today's adults are experiencing often, You look at family histories and it goes back to having had an adverse childhood experience or being exposed to adverse community environments. So things like being exposed to child abuse or neglect, being exposed to poverty, which includes food insecurity, housing insecurity. It could be growing up in an unsafe environment where there is violence in the home or violence in the community. Could be growing up in a home where you have a parent who has an addiction. It could be that you have an incarcerated parent. Any of those types of ACEs can negatively impact a child's ability to become resilient as they grow into adulthood. So what we do is use the science behind ACEs to work with very, very vulnerable families. Most of our referrals come from the Department of Children's Services. Uh, We work with referrals from Department of Human Services with area courts. And we also do programming in uh, jails that are in Davidson County, Rutherford County and Knox County at the moment. This year, we began a teen parenting program in collaboration with Metro Nashville Public Schools and several schools in Montgomery County. And how many people do you serve each year? It depends. You know, it depends. But on average, we serve about 750 adults, 750 parents. And we impact and we serve in a number of different ways. We have programs and all of our programs are evidence-based. 
and we augment with current best practices. Um, we're currently looking at a diff different curriculum for working directly with our parents who are incarcerated and their families, because we do both group work with a parents in, in all kinds of settings, including working in um, substance recovery settings or human trafficking settings. Anywhere there's a parent who is struggling and wants to be a better parent for their children, we're there. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis. They provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com, J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R.com. And how do you measure success and outcomes? Well, there are a number of different things that we're doing. And, and outcomes, I think, for us have been one of the biggest challenges since I've been here for the past five and a half years. But we're finally kind of honing in. A lot of it depends on what methodology is attached to the curriculum that we use, right? So we have certain programs that we have to use because we receive state funding. And often that evidence-based curriculum is also accepted if we get funding that comes through the feds or if we have private funding. So we may use something called the adult and adolescent uh, inventory that looks at reduction in things like potential for child abuse. And yet we really try to be a non-judgment zone. And so what we're trying to do is look at ways to also look at parental growth over time and get that to observe changes in parent-child interaction, especially in our nurturing families program where we do one-on-one -on -one family coaching. Mm -hmm. So we have different programs at different levels based on what our client needs are and where the facilities are, who our partners are. And that's our family resilience work, by the way. So to answer your question, it could be um, direct observation, for an outcome, it could be direct client feedback in terms of their their feelings around how they've changed. When we work with the children, we try to get feedback directly from the children around that, how they feel the, the home environment has changed and their relationship with their parents may have changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Obviously, whatever inventories are connected with the curriculums bring us that. So outcomes kind of vary. And the other thing that we're introducing this year is more of a case management approach, because again, most of the families are incredibly vulnerable, and especially with incarcerated parents, 
there are so many hindrances to them getting back into a healthy family environment. We're trying to help over, overcome some of that. Right. How large of a staff do you have? Um, right now we have 18. We have the majority of our staff in our family resilience work. The other work that we do is in the area of organizational resilience. So we realized if we were going to truly pursue our mission and our vision, we not only needed to work directly with vulnerable families, but we also needed to work with the staff who work with those families and other systems and other agencies. So we do training with staff in jails, in courts, um, in government agencies and other nonprofits so that they can learn more about ACEs. They can also learn how to become trauma-informed themselves because mm. all of the research shows that if you have more trauma-informed interactions with people, it reduces the likelihood that they will escalate in behaviors and emotions. It will definitely increase their potential for engaging in additional service delivery, and they just feel safer and therefore Anytime we can increase our vulnerability as humans, we have greater potential for success in making change. You know, that's, that's a big issue in Los Angeles right now, discussing police activity versus social worker activity. And in the last month or so, we've had too many instances of police being more aggressive than they needed to be because they didn't know how to handle someone having a, a stressful situation. Exactly. And... I think that is something Nashville as a city has been a little more progressive in. They now have the Metro Nashville Police Department has a process that if law enforcement is out and identifies an individual, it, is at risk for a mental health or an emotional crisis then they actually bring in a mental health team to work as opposed to getting engaged in that kind of potentially volatile situation. situation. Yeah, yeah, very good. And your funding, it comes from state, federal, individual gifts. How's that working for you? You know, it comes from um, found local foundations. Um, we have state funding. We have some local funding um, from various regions around us. We have been fortunate to be involved in several justice-specific federal partnerships, so federal funding through those types of partnerships. Um, obviously, individual gifts, major donor gifts. We have two events a year. This year, our Change the Tune event on April 1st is going to be an incredibly exciting event for us. We have many people are familiar with Rascal Flats, uh -huh. Jay Demarcus, who used to be with Rascal Flats, and Jason Sheff, who used to be with Chicago. And they have created a new band called Generation Radio, and they're performing this year for us. Oh, at, wonderful! I know it's, and they have um, Tom Petty's former a drummer on their team and two local artists, Tom Yankton and Chris Rodriguez. And so it's going to be an incredible night. So we are, we're gearing up for, for that event at Marathon Music Works here in Nashville. So it's a big concert and, and it's fun because we ask people to come in their favorite music festival attire. Ah. And it's, <laughs> it's like a big party. 
we um I joke with people and say you can you can choose any festival, but if you come dressed for Burning Man, you just have to come dressed. <laughs> and, and they know a Burning Man is in Tennessee, huh? They do, yeah. <laughs> when I was in Northern California, that was a um, obviously a major event in the north. Uh, from that standpoint, I'm on the board of a small nonprofit in L.A. called Safe Parking L.A., where we provide parking lots for people who are living in their cars to safely mm -hmm. park. But we're in that fledgling kind of growing organization where 90 percent of our funding is state and federal and, and local and our individual gifts are not very much. So we're getting ready for our first ever gala uh, in the coming year, which will be very interesting to see whether we can pull it off or not. But it's always it's always good to to get people excited about the cause. And when I talk to people about safe parking, they get real excited, which is always a good thing. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial, personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. So let's talk a little bit about your, your background with larger nonprofits. You and I first met the Alzheimer's Association in L.A., and I will tell my listeners that you were a great CEO, and I uh, I got to work with you side by side and and taking instructions from time to time from you. And of course, you had to deal with my fighting aggressive attitude of I know how to do it kind of way. But in a bigger organization, how is that different than running a smaller organization that you have now? That's an excellent question. I think in many ways, it's easier to run a larger organization because you have more resources. And having those resources allows you to have more flexibility. It allows you to take more calculated risks and to really try things that you may not try as easily when you're running a smaller nonprofit. I also think that larger organizations, especially those with a national brand, are more easily recognized. And branding is, you know, it's a lot in the nonprofit world. Branding makes a huge difference. So for the five and a half years I've been here with this organization, we've been highly focused on branding and getting the word out. And, and one of the ways to do that, going back to your question about um, what we're doing in fundraising and me talking about the events and you talking about your first gala with this small organization is it's critical when you have that opportunity to introduce a brand to someone that's not familiar with it, to make a case that is truly heartfelt and through events to follow up because people walk away from an event feeling really good. They had a great experience. And so that first couple of weeks after the event is critical timing for scheduling those coffees or meetings to be able to say, we know you had a great time. We hoped you learned something. We'd like to share more 
and maybe see if there's a way to get you engaged on a more continuing basis. So I think that requires bandwidth. And in a larger organization, you have more staff who provide that bandwidth. In a smaller organization, it really does require a lot more strategy and a lot more commitment at the development and uh, CEO level. Is one or the other more fun to work with as a CEO, executive director, or they just have different challenges? I think they just have different challenges. You know, for me, I was passionate about the work with Alzheimer's because I was someone who had been impacted in my family. I also saw and resonated with everyone who walked through our door who was impacted, you included. Um, you know, that is the toughest journey that I think any of us, medical journey, that any of us will ever go through because it is like having a double death. You know, it is that you lose the person as who they were and then you lose them again when they finally die. It's exhausting as a caregiver. It's exhausting on every level um, as a family member. What I do now though, I think really is tapping into not only every piece of education and skill and experience that I have in my toolbox, but having worked as a clinical social worker with children who had experienced intense situations around childhood, uh, adverse childhood experiences, adverse community environments, back when I was in New Orleans, having worked at a hospital that really focused on end-stage disease and knowing the, not just correlation, but the causality between ACEs, brain development, and later health challenges, I think really stimulates my passion for what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. So it is sometimes harder because I have to rein myself in and focus more on self-care while I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I do in my, in my, I have a couple of clients right in my consulting practice and one is struggling with, you know, board transition and keeping board members engaged in the work that they do. Um, how does that work with you? How, how diverse is your board at the family center? Uh, and do you, do you have them engaged really well? We have an incredibly engaged board. I've been lucky to have engaged boards anywhere that I've been in a leadership role. And I think here we have mostly board members who are parents. So they automatically get that the hardest job any of us will have ever have being a parent <laughs> yeah right and yeah. it's the one that we are the least prepared for and yet everyone assumes that we'll be able to just do it well with no resources and yet you have to have a driver's license to drive a car you don't have to have any kind of anything to be able to raise a child so i think they get that they are often very fortunate, they're privileged in where they are in life, and they're able to bring that to their, their parenting. And yet, the families that we work with are often highly stressed. 
by situations that are beyond their control. So there is a compassion for the families that we serve among our board members. We have been working very strategically to increase the diversity, the racial and cultural diversity among our staff. We've seen a lot of success there. We're still working on that among our board. So seeing some progress, and I'm hoping in the next year to see even more progress there. Nashville is a culturally diverse community, and our board needs to reflect that cultural diversity, that racial right. diversity as well. So, But it, it takes intention. Without that intention, you're not ever going to make that happen. So it's really important to put that intentionality out there. Well, I just did a board retreat for a, a large, medium-sized nonprofit out here in the Valley. And as part of it, I did a lot of governance training and things like that. And I finally said about a half hour in, so rate your board from one to 10. If your board is exceptionally well-run and you're really getting a lot out of it and you're really feeling great, it's a 10. If it's not, it's a zero. And somewhere in between, where do you come? And all the board members rated their board as five and six. Mm -hmm. And I went, to myself quietly i said to myself well that means more money because <laughs> they need a lot of help but a lot of boards don't know how to effectively run themselves and the ceos sometimes are afraid of their boards in some ways because you know as i know as an ed and you know as an ed you work at the at the uh, expense of the board whether they love you or don't love you if the work you do is great or not great you have personality changes and all of a sudden the board changes we thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Do you see your role as an executive director and leading the organization uh, driving the board or having the board drive what's going on in the organization? I truly think of it as a partnership. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we did when I got here five and a half years ago is do a deep dive into the bylaws to ensure that our governing documents were consistent with our operating practices, both at the governance level and also at the operational level. And out of that, when I was hired, they hired me as CEO so that I could be an officer of the corporation. And that gives me the ability to sign documents and do things that Sometimes you can't do as an executive director, right? depending right. on how, how your state is structured and how the corporate documents are written. So in passing our bylaws or revised bylaws to a, an attorney specializing in nonprofit law, 
she came back to our board chair at the time and said, so who is responsible for these duties? And our board chair said, well, that, that would be Susan. And she said, okay, then you're not the board president. You don't get the title president, you're board chair. The president title goes to the CEO. Right. So they changed my title at that point, and that's when they added president and CEO, which to me is just a title. I still get down and clean, you know, the closets and scrub the toilets and do all of that. You know, I, I don't. <laughs> well, when I'm, I'm not became, proud. When I became um, an executive director, someone said to me, "The first, I said, what advice can you give me as a mentor?" And he said, "said Learn how to move tables and chairs." Amen. Yeah, there's nothing I won't do. It really is a partnership. I think. It's knowing where the boundaries exist, keeping those lines of communication open, creating those relationships so that there is trust. And I think trust is, it's crucial. They have to trust me and I have to trust them. And so part of what I do around building trust is kind of following the idea of radical candor I am, I am very honest about everything, and I bring things that maybe are more operational to their attention if I feel like it has a potential long-term impact on their role as board members. Right. And they're also, I think, very open to sharing things about themselves, opportunities, relationships, connections as a result of the fact that they trust me right. and my role. Well, one of the things you mentioned, and I think it was kind of humorous, you mentioned that they went to the bylaws first because there are two documents every nonprofit has that they put together and then put on the shelves. Mm -hmm. One is the strategic plan, which they do a lot of work in and then never look at it again. And then the bylaws, you know, and I'm kind of like the governance chair of, of the nonprofit. I'm I'm I'm, I'm vice chair and, and, and chair of the governance committee. And someone asked the question, I said, well, let's check what the bylaws say about that. Let's make sure that we're doing the right thing. And also tying mission and vision to bylaws, you know, and does it does it allow you to stay, do you stay focused on the right thing? You know, on that. it does. It's It's important. And when you speak about strategic planning, we introduced strategic mapping when we redid our bylaws six years ago. So we create a map that allows us to sometimes take the direct route, sometimes take the circuitous route. And it is looking at a three-year concept with specific goals and strategies but it also creates some flexibility. And we create a dashboard and we look at that dashboard to see how we're tracking against specific targets. And I think that's really important. Nonprofits today have to operate as businesses, yet it's not a business where you know, based on how many sales you're gonna have or how many service provisions you're going to be able to offer, that you'll have a certain revenue coming in. You're still at the mercy of funders right? at all levels. Very, so, very uh, you know, when we create our budget every year, you know, the board will ask me, how confident are you at this? And I'm like, well, I'm as confident as I can be today, but it's a crapshoot. 
and and it changes regularly. I mean, and it changes regularly. Change, you know. And, no one, no one um, expected COVID to affect us the way it did, and there we are. We sur- we survived it, right? As they say. Yes, and and for some of us, it was actually good because it taught us adaptability. It taught us flexibility around service delivery. Thanks to the government, there were resources that we could pull in that helped us sustain what we do. And I think with anything you have to look at, is the glass half full or is it half empty? Right. So, and I think know. one of the things we, we all learned about, about COVID work when we were working and running our nonprofits was you can reach a lot more people on Zoom than you could in person. And the telling your story and getting it to reach more people was much easier with the Zoom networks going on, you know? And I have clients, one in Florida, mm-hmm. one in Canada, besides the ones in California, and it's all, con- it's all done because we learned how to use that tool effectively, you know? For us, it was a game changer for our incarcerated parents. Right. Because Zoom allowed us to do the one-on-one family coaching with the person while they're incarcerated, it allows them to connect or reconnect, to attach or reattach with their children. And, and the changes that we saw in those children and in the parents was just unbelievable. Well, it, it, it reduced the stigma those children felt. Yeah. And yeah. it re- allowed them to stay connected with parents and in a way that's meaningful. And they were able to learn more and learn how to process their feelings around what happened with their parent that took them away from them. So there were so many wins as a result of that. And we're continuing to do that work and hoping to grow it. And this kind of resonates with me. I don't know if you know about my background at all growing up, but I was from a broken home and an abusive parent who turned out was bipolar, but that's not what they diagnosed back then. And we got evicted from apartments many times in my youth. <laughs> and we didn't realize till we were adults that we were moving a lot because we were being evicted. But we picked yeah. that up down the road. Um, and it was support networks that we had. In our case, it was synagogue and families that we grew up with there that gave us a support network. In fact, we just lost my best friend's mother at 95 years of age. And he and I have been friends for 60 years. And those are the kind of th- So you need that community. You know, I think... I think it was Obama, uh, Michelle Obama said, you, you know, you, you build it with a village, not individually. And I think your organization is, is really doing that. And that's, that's great work. We actually use that phrase a lot. It takes a village to raise a child. It's an African proverb and it is spot on. It, I just couldn't remember it, right? <laughs> to get it right. But that's, that's, that's the proverb. Um, so let's finish up talking a little bit about you because my audience likes to know about the the character of the people that I that I work with on the podcast. You you obviously are resilient yourself from New Orleans to LA to Nashville. What do you like to do in your free time? What's what's fun for you? Well, one of my favorite things to do in my free time is read. I love going into a coffee shop with a great book and just kind of vibing with the energy around me but not having to talk to anyone. Because in my day job, I talk all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I love spending time with my adult daughter, who is now back in California at the moment. I love traveling. Traveling is high on my list. And just, you know, spending time traveling with friends, with my daughter, 
uh, all over is um, probably top of all the things I enjoy doing. <laughs> I have two cats and, and a terrierist that I inherited from my mother. <laughs> he is a terrier mix. But when people ask me what breed he is, because he's very cute, I tell them he's a terrierist because he can bark. I got lucky. it. <laughs> um, well, when we were and, in Alzheimer's, we had a dog on staff. So that was a good thing, too. Right. <laughs> well, we did. And at the end, if you recall, I, I brought the terrierist. Yep. So we had Jackson, yep. <laughs> the, the Boston Terrier. And then we had Jax, the terrierist mix. <laughs> And if you recall, they would run down the hall together and made it kind of fun. We're dog friendly here as well. So staff bring in their dogs to the office. And, you know, in, in terms of free time, um, it, it just I don't I don't have a lot of it, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah. Well, I know you I, like I music. Think, so being in Nashville must be an exciting place to be, too. I try to go listen to music whenever I can there. And I also have a good friend who is in very into music so sometimes we'll go out together i think when you're the ceo of a growing nonprofit, one of the things that you asked about in terms of the difference between a larger nonprofit and a smaller one is that it's not just a job it's not just a career it's a life yeah and yeah. so right now my life is very focused on getting this agency to a place where we are large enough that some of us can have more free time. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and lastly, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't have my list of questions? Anything we should know? Well, when I think about philanthropy, and this is the road to philanthropy, I think of several things. I think of the fact that anyone at any stage of their career and their income generation can become involved in philanthropy. And it's finding the right organization, starting small. We have a sustainer circle at the Family Center, which is a monthly giving opportunity for people to engage. And we encourage our young professionals to start out giving us $5 a month. Right. I think as people progress in their ability to become more philanthropic through greater resources. It's incumbent upon any of us in this world to follow those people and to get them engaged at different and bigger levels later on in their careers. Yet, every nonprofit is really reliant on that core group of donors who give consistently give monthly, give annually, and, it, and it's all levels. So I think when I think of philanthropy, what comes to mind is giving what you can, when you can, however you can. That's a great message. And most of us think of philanthropy at that high level, and yet it's so much more than that. So right. I strongly encourage anyone who might be listening in to share that message and to find ways to either become involved personally through volunteerism, through giving at a small level to whatever they can do to make a difference. Because if they make a difference in just one life, they have made a huge difference in all of our lives. 
Very, very true. Let's end there. That's a great way to end the, the conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. And it was always great working with you. And I'm glad you're doing so well today. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much. Um, always great seeing you and catching up. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at Painted Rock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>